All right, we're going to start a series this month called Fight for Others. Our theme for 2021, as I mentioned in the announcements, is Fight On, Fight On for the Cause of Christ. And uh, in many ways, uh, Christianity has been uh, pushed back and relegated and uh, frankly, in some cases, uh, just outright surrendered uh, some of the truths of the Bible. And our goal as a church is to be the exception, uh, to be the kind of church that's fighting on and fighting back. And uh, we fight for many reasons. And this month, I want us to be specifically provoked to remember some of the reasons why we fight. We fight for others as well. Uh, the story of a uh, young man that graduated from college and his father was a uh, lawyer in the country of Spain and uh, the young man was considering his future. His dad had always dreamed of his boy going off to law school and taking over the practice someday and the young man wasn't convinced but he, what he suggested when he graduated from his undergraduate degree was he said, Dad, let me do this. Let me get a desk and put it in the corner of your office Introduce me to your clients as a clerk, and then observing what you do and, and how things go, that'll give me an idea of whether or not I want to follow uh, in your footsteps. And the father said, that's a great idea, son. So they got it arranged, and the next Monday morning came, and uh, early in the morning, uh, the first client came, and it was an elderly man who was uh, all calloused. His face was weather-worn. He was wearing the clothes of a workman, and uh, he went to the attorney, and he said, uh, said, Mr. Lawyer, I work for the Gonzalez Farm down the road here on the east side of town. And I've worked there for many, many years. I've raised the crops. I've tilled the lands. Um, I have uh, done all the work on the, for the animals, including uh, some cows. Now, these cows I've raised uh, from the time that they were born. I fed them. I've looked after them with the understanding my whole life that, uh, that when Mr. Gonzalez passes away, that the cows would be mine and that I would own them. And now Mr. Gonzalez has passed away, but his widow is insisting that the cows belong to her since they were raised on her farm and ate the hay and et cetera, et cetera. And the attorney listened to this story and he said, uh, he said, I've heard enough. I'll take your case. Don't even worry about the cows. The guy left and it wasn't but an hour later, a lady came in the office, well-dressed and uh, clearly uh, somebody who had all the signs of affluence. And she introduced herself to the lawyer. She said, sir, I am Mrs. Gonzalez. And um, I uh, inherited my husband's farm on the east side of town. And uh, he just passed away. And uh, we've had this farm in our family for many generations. And uh, we've had a man that's worked for us for many years. And and now he says that because he raised the cattle on our farm, that he owns the cattle. And uh, we need your help to make sure that we, the cattle stays in the family. And the attorney said, I've heard enough. I'll take your case. Don't worry about the cows. So when she leaves, the son, of course, is thinking, well, what's going on here? And he goes to dad. He goes to the dad and says, now, wait a minute. You told the, the worker, don't worry about the cows. You told the lady, don't worry about the cows. Uh, you know, now we're going to be fighting with ourselves over who owns those cows. And the lawyer said, well, actually, that's not true. I told them, don't worry about the cows because we will own the cows. <laughs> now, the problem with lawyer jokes, before I knew there was going to be a lawyer with us this morning, is that lawyers don't think they're funny. And everybody else doesn't think that they're jokes. 
But this story, this story drives home the point of this. That we are life, right? Both these people had expectations of what their life was going to look like at the end. And their life was built doing things, and uh, they thought they were building towards an expected end. Uh, but in both cases, there was some disconnect be between what they expected and what they had. As Christians, uh, especially as it relates to the issue we're going to talk about this morning, I think this is very true. Uh, it drives home the point that our lives, our labor, and our love someday is going to be reckoned and is going to be measured. And uh, in many cases, I think we're going to wish that we could go back and do things differently. We're going to, we could reappropriate some of the things in our life. This morning, as we get ready this week to launch into our, our annual missions conference, and our missions conferences have been really the highlights of our church calendar the last couple of years. I have no reason to believe this is going to be an exception. Um, I want to take a little bit of time this morning and do something that we actually haven't done for many years, and that is to give the biblical basis for why it is that we're having a missions conference and how it is that we're going to uh, partner with these missionaries and their families around the world, and Lord willing, continually increasing number of missionaries around the world uh, through our Faith Promise Missions Program, our local church Faith Promise Missions Program. And uh, so this morning I want to preach on the subject of faith to promise, faith to promise. Our text is going to come from 2 Corinthians 8, and starting in verse number 1, the Bible says this, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Now, remember, this is the Apostle Paul. He's writing to the local church at Corinth. He's writing in a way to rebuke the church at Corinth. He's had two epistles here that's doing that. And now he's going to use uh, a group of churches in Macedonia to provoke the church at Corinth to do what they are supposed to do, not as it relates to their local church only, but to the cause of getting the gospel to the, to the whole world. And uh, Corinth, if you recall, was a wealthy city. Corinth was a decadent city. Um, and Macedonia was at this time uh, a place of extreme poverty. And you're going to see that here in the, in the passage. So verse number two, how that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power... I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. So I want to unpack that here so that we're not missing what we're reading here. So these poor churches that were uh, in a trial of affliction with what the Bible calls deep poverty uh, reached out to Paul, and they said, Paul, we want to invest and give you gifts, or, or what we would say today is money. We want to give so that we could have a fellowship in the ministering to the saints of your ministry as you go out and start churches. Verse number five says, and this they did not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. Insomuch that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, now look at verse 7, in faith, 
and utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us, see that ye abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes became he poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Father, we pray that you bless your word today. We pray that you work in our hearts. We pray that you help us as a church, Father, to cultivate, to maintain, to increase our hearts and our faith uh, as it relates to the cause of getting the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. Get yourself glory this morning, and we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to draw your attention, first of all, to verse number five, if you would. Paul is saying this, before, before the, the, these Christians in these local churches in Macedonia, before they came to us and said, uh, we want to be a part of your ministry, we want to be uh, giving to the uh, uh, missions work that you're doing, before they did that, very simply, they gave themselves over to the Lord. This is an example of of second, I'm sorry, of Romans chapter 12, verse 1 in action. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So that's what these guys did. That's what these Christians did in these churches in Macedonia. They gave themselves to the Lord first. And I want you to know that the consequence of that, the result of that, was that they got a burden, they got a heart, if you will, for what God was doing, not just in Macedonia, but what God was doing in other places. So I want us to understand as we're talking about a faith to promise, and we're going to talk about some of the details of faith promise here this morning, and as we go through the next week uh, to our faith promise offering on Sunday nights, I want us to understand that it all begins with our hearts. begins with our heart. First of all, it begins with a heart for the Lord's mission. They gave themselves first over to the Lord. Why are we having a missions conference this week? What is the goal? Okay. The goal is to cultivate a heart, to renew our hearts, to expand our heart for what God communicated to us through the Great Commission. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Well, we can't all do that, but we can all be involved in doing that. In the 1840s, there's a guy named John Getty who left the pastorate of a prosperous, growing, thriving church in Canada. And he took his wife and two small children to the South Sea Islands to begin a mission work there to reach the people with the gospel. All told, he, his voyage, uh, in his voyage, he traveled more than 20,000 miles. They arrived at the island of Anitium. And the island chain was filled with cannibals. More than 20 crew members of a British ship had been killed and eaten just months before the Gettys arrived on the mission field. They faced the difficulty of learning a language that had no written form, the constant threat of being killed. But over time and slowly at first, a few converts came. And then soon, many more received the gospel. Getty continued his ministry faithfully, including translating the entire King James Bible into the native language and planting 25 local churches. For many of these years, Getty labored with little help, little word from home, but God was faithful to his servants. In the pulpit of the church Getty pastored for so many years stands a plaque in his honor 
which says this. When he landed in, 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 sorry, when he landed in 1848, there were no Christians here. And when he left in 1872, there were no heathen. Simply put, missions makes a difference. Missions makes a difference. But it starts with having a heart for the Lord's mission. It starts with having a heart for the Lord's mission. The Lord's mission is very simple. In Matthew 18, 11, the Lord said, The Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. And that's all of us. So his mission starts with very simply the saving of souls. Taking those of us that are on our way to an eternity in a lake of fire. And by his grace and through his love and with the payment that he established on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection, he reaches out in grace and love and saves the souls of lost men and women. But it doesn't stop there. His desire and his commission, his command to a church isn't just to see people pray prayers. It isn't even just to see people get saved. It's to create growing and fruitful disciples of Jesus Christ. So he, he, his, his mission is to save souls and then to sanctify saints. Can I remind you that even in the 21st century, that God's desire for those of us that are saved is that we would also be transformed, that we would be renewed, that we would have a different mind than we had before. And God is still in the business of sanctifying his saints. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, even your sanctification. God's desire is to do a work that begins at salvation and continues from glory to glory. And out of some of those servants, so he saved souls. The Lord's mission is to sanctify the saints that he saves. And then out of those, he's going to call some of them to do great things in lands that they don't know, to people that they've never met. And he desires in some cases to send his choicest servants to meet the demands of the Great Commission. Take your Bible, if you would, and turn quickly over to Acts chapter 13, please. And I want us to understand that what we're doing today in the 21st century, what we're doing this week in having a missions conference, a Faith Promise Missions Conference, partnering with families that have been called out of local New Testament churches to travel around the world, to preach the gospel, to train men, to plant local indigenous churches, is what has been going on since the very first century. We're just continuing what we read about here in the book of Acts. The very first missionary call that we're aware of started here at the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 13. Now look at verse number one. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia. And then they continued on. Now I want you to notice this very simple New Testament model. You have people that are members of faithful, serving, ministering members of a local New Testament church in Antioch. They're doing what they're supposed to do. They're ministering. They're teaching the word, they're preaching the word, they're, witness, they're seeing people saved. And then the Holy Spirit of God says, separate me these two guys. 
Now, I don't know why the Lord said those two guys and not somebody else. The Apostle Paul later revealed through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that he thanked God that, uh, uh, that he counted him faithful, putting him into the ministry. So we know that faithfulness is part of what the Lord looks for uh, before he calls somebody into the ministry. But, but he said, out of all these other people that were probably qualified, I want these two guys because I've called them into a work. And what that work included was that local church, by the way, recognizing that call and as we study through the book of Acts, like we're doing in Sunday school, we recognize that, that Paul, no matter what he did, he always came back to home base, and he was under the auspice, under the sponsorship, and under the authority of his local New Testament church. But what he did is he went out and starting other churches and solicited, if you will, or, or, or in this case in, in Macedonia, they solicited him to be part of what he was doing. That's exactly what we're doing this week. That's exactly what we do every week when we take up our tithes and offerings and we give money to our Faith Promise um, offering, to our missions program. We're partnering with missionaries that were serving in a local church. They're being fruitful. The Holy Spirit said, I want you to separate this family for me for a work one to I've called them into. And then other local churches like ours Say, I want to be a part of that. I want to have the fellowship of the ministering of the saints. Amen. It all starts with having a heart for the Lord's mission, to see souls saved. Amen. Isn't it wonderful, if you've ever had the opportunity to do that, well, we've all had the opportunity for saved. <laughs> let, me, let me be clear about that, okay? If you've ever taken the opportunity to get the gospel to somebody who was lost and to see that person trust Christ, yep. it's an amazing thing to see God save souls. And if you've ever had the opportunity to disciple somebody and see their life change through the power of the Word of God and see them become strengthened in their faith and to see the grave clothes uh, being shed and to see uh, spiritual truth gain ascendancy in their life, what a wonderful thing that that is. What a wonderful, beautiful thing that is. And then, and this is part of the reason, maybe the main reason why we have a Bible Institute here, to see that men trained in the local church, equipped, serving, being faithful, and someday hearing the Holy Spirit say, separate me that guy and his family for the work whereunto I've called them. It starts with having a heart for the Lord's mission. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, if you would, please. And one of the things that we need to do is what Paul's implying that even the church of Corinth had in verse number 7. If you look at the end of verse number 7, when he says, uh, well, let's read the whole thing. Therefore, as ye abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, in knowledge, and in all diligence, then he says this, and in your love to us. So Paul recognized that even though the church at Corinth, and we'll get to here in a second what their problem was, even though the church at Corinth had a whole host of problems, the one thing that he recognizes is that, is that they had a heart and a love for him as the missionary. And uh, I want to say that as, as, as we consider this idea of sending servants we also consider the idea of sent servants. And what we need to do is develop our hearts, not only for Christ's mission, for the Lord's mission, but also for the Lord's missionaries. And we're going to be privileged this week to be able to spend time and to talk with and to meet and to learn and to be able to pray with and, and pray for uh, these missionary families. Those of you that have been around in past missions conference, I know that the Lord has knit our hearts as a church with the missionaries that we support. And they're not just nameless faces on a missionary display. Uh, they're not just people that we read about in a prayer letter that's so disconnected. 
uh, but there are people that we've been able to develop a love for. And this week, one of the things that we're able to do, if we're faithful to the missions conference, is to develop and to deepen that love we have, not only for the Lord's mission, which saved us when other people obeyed it, but also for the Lord's missionaries. Now look at 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 14, because this is our part, okay? This is our part in it, unless God has called you or will call you to go. Until God calls you to go, this is your part. Look at verse 14. Well, look at this, for verse 13. For I mean not that other men be eased and ye be burdened, but by an equality. Okay, now I want you to understand that equality and fairness are not the same thing. Okay? What Paul is talking about here is an equality of opportunity. Paul and Barnabas, or Barnabas and Saul, were given the opportunity that other men were not given. They were given the opportunity to go, to preach, to see multitudes and multitudes of people saved, that, that the church that sent them out, those people, they're never going to meet them. They got the opportunity to start churches. They got the opportunity to train men. And those men led scores and multitudes of scores of other people to Christ. And so they were given that opportunity. And what the Lord is saying here is that for those of us that are, that are staying behind, those of us that are keeping the home fire burning, there's an equality of opportunity as it relates to missions. And here's what it is. By an equality that now at this time, your abundance may be a supply for their wants, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be an equality. As it is written, he that had gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. So what's he saying here? He's saying very simply this. The missionary has an abundance of opportunity that you don't have. Brother Hoffmeister is there in Trinidad and Tobago. He, is, he and his ministry have led lots of people to Christ. He's training men to the ministry. They're starting local churches. They're planning local churches. Brother Marco, over 10 years in the Philippines, has done the same thing. That's an opportunity that they have that we don't have. Amen. Okay, Brother, Hoffmeister, uh, Brother Goddard is getting ready to go to the mission field to do the same thing. But there's something that, 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 that we have that they don't have. And we don't like to talk about it much in the context of church, but it's one of the main themes of the Bible. And what we have that they don't have is we have the financial resources to allow them to do what they're doing, to be able to partner with them. So there's an equality. We have an opportunity to do what we can do, and they have an opportunity to do what we cannot do, but we both have to do Amen. our parts. The missionaries God sends sacrifice their lives. Um, and I'll just tell you this, for the most part, I'm sure there's probably an exception or two, uh, when, when God sends a missionary to the foreign field, he's not going to be picking the guy that wouldn't be able to support himself, you know, staying back home. Okay? Those types of people never make it to the mission field. Okay? He's picking people uh, that have every gifting and ability and, uh, and, and reason to expect that they would be able to stay in the United States to support themselves in most cases very well, but they're willing to sacrifice all of that for a great unknown. The great unknown that is promises to give them the opportunity to win souls and to disciple souls. But I want us to remember that the way that uh, the missionary families we're gonna meet this week have chosen to, to do this 
is that not only the missionary, but their whole families sacrifice. I'm reminded of a five-year-old girl, Ariana, who was home on furlough with her family from Africa. And a well-meaning lady in the church came up to her one night as they're having fellowship after service, and she said, now, little Ariana, uh, don't you want to be a missionary when you grow up? And her five-year-old answer was, I'm a missionary now. So we had to develop a burden. Our heroes, our children's heroes, probably ought not be guys that uh, can hit a ball or throw a ball. Certainly shouldn't be somebody that gets paid millions of dollars to pretend to be somebody else on a screen. Maybe our heroes should be missionaries. People that really are doing something with their lives that matter not only for time, but also for eternity. Now our conference is going to end with a pledge where we have an opportunity to do our parts, to financially partner with our missionary families. But it starts with us developing a heart for the Lord's mission. I'll tell you this, everything else will last only so long in your life as a Christian if you let the passion and the fire for the Lord's mission in your life burn out. There was a young clergyman and he said to the Duke of Wellington that he didn't see any reason to send missionaries to the foreign lands to convert the heathen there when there were so many heathen back home in England. And here was the Duke's answer. I don't think you'd get any of the royal family today to answer like this, but here's what the Duke's answer was. He said, look, sir, to your marching orders. Our great captain, Jesus Christ, has said go, and we must simply obey. What a simple truth, a simple truth of having a heart for the Lord's mission. Now, if we're going to be a church, and I think we want to be a church, that makes a difference all around the world, that has invested our hearts and invested our prayers and invested our finances in missions around the world, we need to make sure that we have, before we do that, we read about in Acts 13, we have a heart for our local mission. One of the dangers, frankly, of, 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 of focusing on missions to, to, uh, to an unhealthy degree, which I don't think we do here, if anything, we maybe underemphasize it a little bit, uh, not intentionally, but that's where I think that the, uh, that the error is, is that we can, we can satiate our conscience for what we need to be doing here in Orange County because we're doing so much in Papua New Guinea, because we're doing so much in the Ukraine, because we're doing so much in Ecuador or Guyana or in these other countries where we have missionaries that we're supporting. So we need to also maintain and develop a heart for our local mission. Another story of a five-year-old girl who just gotten saved. And one day she told her mom, she said, I think Jesus moved out of my heart, mommy. The mom was a little concerned and curious about that. And she said, well, Hannah, honey, where did Jesus go? And she said, well, I think he moved out of my heart and, and into my throat. Because all I want to do is tell people about Jesus. And that, wow. <laughs> Because that is somebody who has a heart for our local mission. So before we, can, before we can give to missions, we must give locally. Now, one of the great blessings of pastoring this local church um, is that while we have stewardship month and we preach on, on giving because it's really one of the main themes of the Bible is finances and stewardship of those things, uh, for the most part... 
um, we have an extremely faithful giving church. And as a result of that, our finances for our church are in very, very good order. And so um, I'm not preaching on giving this morning or mentioning giving to the local church because, you know, we've got a mortgage payment due that we can't pay. Uh, I'm preaching it just so you understand because it's what the Bible says. And we need to know what the Bible says and we need to obey the Bible. And um, I don't preach on giving much. And if you think I do, it's because you don't give. And it bothers you, right? But if you give, then it's not going to bother you, okay? And so I want to briefly talk about just having a heart for our local mission. Number one, we have the means for giving, okay? Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, if you would, please, in verse number 7. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse number 7. The Bible says, Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. The basis for New Testament local church giving is a grateful heart, is a cheerful heart, and a heavenly mind. Christ said this, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So if we're going to develop a heart for the Lord's mission, if we're going to develop a heart for our local mission, can I remind you that one of the ways to do that is to give, give like the church of Macedonians, the churches of Macedonia gave, give obediently, but also give cheerfully, and to give sacrificially, to give sacrificially. Now, what is the method of giving? Now, I've taught this in the past. We're not going to go off into this, but in the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, before the law, under the law, in, in the church, the basis for giving is and has always been, and as far as I can tell, will always be the tithe. Okay, the tithe is the first tenth of our increased. Uh, and that is what belongs to the Lord. And we give the tithe to our local New Testament church. I'm not going to give a big uh, study about that this morning. Uh, but we read in Malachi uh, that you bring all the tithes into the storehouse. In the New Testament, the house of God is the local church, 1 Timothy 3 and verse number 15. And um, that is the method that we give. So we give our tithe to the local church for the propagation of the ministry of the local church. So what is the motive for giving? So we have the means to give. We have the method to give. The motive for giving is this. What do we do with our giving? What does our local church giving do? Well, it supports the church's ministry. And I'll just remind you of this. If the local church can't move forward, which we're not, frankly, at this point in any danger of, financially at least, um, then that church isn't going to be supporting very many missionaries if it ceases to exist. And one of the things that's a very alarming trend in Bible-believing Christianity is you have churches that are... Uh, going away from the scriptures, turning away from the Bible, turning away from Bible Christianity. They're not changing their doctrinal statement, they're just changing their practice, which over time affects their doctrinal position. And now, a lot of churches that used to emphasize uh, missions giving, that used to emphasize partnering with the missionaries, are starting to cut back on that because they can't even keep the doors open of their local church. Or they're turning away from foreign missions entirely. Or... They're investing in social-type programs in the foreign fields. 
Um, it's great and wonderful to give people drinking water and plumbing and all that stuff, but if you don't get them the gospel, you haven't really done anything for them. And so it's important for us as a Bible-believing local church to continue to have the right motive for giving, which is to facilitate a strong local base. And one of the things that that facilitates is a global reach. Now, we don't like to think about this, but can I tell you that everything we do as a ministry requires finances. And I'll tell you one little secret of the ministry. Um, a lot of people think this is true, but it's not true. God does not give every Baptist church a money tree that you put in the, in the back storage unit and just go there when you need money and just pick off the money off the tree. God gives the money to his people, and then he expects his people to give to him. And if you, if you fail to be faithful in that, God calls you a thief. Okay? And uh, as I said in Sunday school, there's a lot of lists I want to avoid. Uh, I want to avoid the list of things that God hates. I don't want to be on that list. If God has a list of people that are blasphemers and members of the synagogue of Satan, as we saw in Sunday school, I want to avoid being on that list. And if God is going to look at people and say, you're a thief, you've robbed me, I don't want to be on that list. Amen. I don't want to be on that list. Uh, but we do that to support everything that we do requires finances. The facilities, the materials, the electricity, the website, paper, ink, staples, the paint on the walls, etc., etc., etc. So we support the church's ministry. We know that uh, local church giving supports the church's ministers. Now, for many years, I was able to work, and now uh, I'm able to pastor full-time. But also, the local church giving strengthens the church's meager, the needs of the people in the church that arise from time to time. And that's what we're commanded to help, commanded to do. So first of all, we need to develop our heart for the Lord's mission, to see souls saved, to see the saints discipled and to be strengthened, and then to see him call select servants around the world. We need to develop our heart for our local mission, where we have a means to give, we have a method to give, and we have a motive to give. And then last, if you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, please. Look at verse number 4 again. Paul says this, praying us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift. I don't know how often that happens anymore, but here you have a church that is in persecution, they're in affliction, they're in deep poverty, and then in, Paul three, in verse 3, Paul says, For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power. They were willing of themselves, praying us with much entreaty. So they had to beg the missionary to take their, what we'll call, financial support. I don't know if that happens very much anymore. <laughs> but, but Paul is using that as an example to provoke the church at Corinth to love, in verse number 8, and it's in the Bible to provoke us to the same love. And so we need to develop not only a heart for the Lord's mission, a heart for our local mission, but also a heart for our long-distance mission. I want to say this because I believe this. Being involved in getting the gospel around the world is not really something that I believe is optional for a Christian. It's just part of our reasonable service. It's part of obeying the Great Commission. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Preach. Uh, Fritz Kreisler was a world-famous violinist a generation ago. And he earned a fortune with his concerts, and he also was a composer. 
But he generously gave away most of his money, and one day, on one of his trips, he discovered the most exquisite violin he'd ever seen in his life. He played it. It played better than any instrument he'd ever held in his life, but he didn't have the money to purchase it. So he uh, left, and, and then he went to raise money to meet the asking price, and a couple years later, he returned to the seller, hoping to purchase that instrument. But to his great dismay, that instrument had been sold to a collector. Now Chrysler made his way to the new owner's home, and he offered to buy the violin. And the collector said it had become his prized possession. He would not sell it. They in, engaged in a discussion, and Chrysler found out that the new owner didn't even play the violin. He just liked the way it looked. And uh, he tried everything he could try to get the man to sell him the violin. And he realized that it was in complete vain. He wasn't going to sell the violin. So Chrysler asked the man, he said, he said, well, since you don't play and you're just going to display it, would you mind if I tuned it and just played it one last time before the violin goes into silence? The owner agreed, and Chrysler tuned the violin, and then he began to play. And the great virtuoso filled the room with heart-moving music that eventually touched the collector's emotions. And at the end of the piece, the collector said this, I have no right to keep that to myself. It's yours, Mr. Chrysler. Take it into the world and let people hear it. We have no right to keep the gospel message to ourselves. Like this investor, we need to make an investment in making sure that the local mission moves forward through our faithful tithe to the local church, but, uh, but above and beyond that, through faith, to make sure that the gospel message goes out to all the world. And it requires faith. Now, Paul here in 2 Corinthians 8 uses the word grace. Faith and grace, we know, are very closely correlated uh, in the Bible. But he says when they're willing to give, it's an example of God's grace being made manifest in their lives. And so it's Sunday night, we're going to take up a faith promise offering. And that faith promise is between us as individuals, as families, and the Lord. We're not like the Mormons. We're not going to come shake you down. Uh, but, uh, but it's between you and the Lord. And it's, it's a promise based on the faith God gives you to do a couple things. Number one, take your Bible, go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It's a promise to pray. It's a promise to pray. Now, people that are cynical might think, oh, when a missionary says, oh, please pray for us, that that's just kind of their, their spiel, right? They have to say that because it makes them sound spiritual, it makes them sound right, it makes them sound like they're not after your money. And so, of course, the missionary is going to say, please pray for us. But we realize in the Bible that the Apostle Paul said to pray for us. And when you get on this side of the ministry equation, you realize that very often the only thing that matters, the only thing that keeps the ship afloat, the only thing that keeps you going is God's grace in answering the prayers of other people. I can promise you there's not a missionary that's ever been faithful to stay on the field that wasn't there on the field in part 
due to the effectual prayers of other people. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says this, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. Paul said, after you've done all the other stuff, pray for us. And what we're going to make a promise this, this week is that we're going to pray for our missionaries. Every Saturday night at men's prayer meeting, I believe, I haven't missed once, I try to remind the men to pray for our missionaries. So how do I pray for missionaries? Well, very quickly. Number one, pray for their family. They're isolated. They're in a very often in a heathen culture. Uh, they don't have a great support system. They don't have, you know, grandma and aunt and somebody else they can call to help with their kids in many cases. Pray for their family. Number two, pray for their faithfulness to the Word of God. One of the other problems we have with some missionaries is they go to the field believing one thing and then they just get weary, they get sidetracked, and they don't really believe what they said they believed after a while. Pray for them to be faithful. Number three, pray for their finances. Now, we have a part of that, right? But pray for their finances. Uh, with currency exchange rates and global lockdowns and inflation going crazy, not only in the United States, but really all the way around the world, uh, missionary support probably isn't going to increase as fast as the cost of goods are going to increase. So pray for their finances. And then number four, pray for fruitfulness of their ministry. The goal of a missionary isn't to go and start a church just somewhere else and to lead that church and then die and have the church close up someday. The goal of a Bible-believing missionary is to do what Paul did. Preach the gospel, see people saved, train them for the ministry, and mission should be multiplication and it should last longer than the life of the missionary. Pray for fruitfulness. So we're going to have the faith to pray for our missionaries. And then if you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, in verse number 7, Paul says this again. He says, Therefore, as you abound in everything, in your own faith, and you abound in utterance and in knowledge, and in all diligence and in your love to us, see that you abound in this grace also. The grace of partnering with missionaries financially to make sure that the gospel gets out. So we're going to have faith to pray and a faith promise to pay. Faith promise to pay. It all comes down to a number. That's what it all comes down to. That's what finances all come down to. As, uh, as unspiritual as that sounds, that's what it all comes down to. And we're going to say, Lord, I believe that this is what you want me to do financially as it relates to the cause of foreign missions. So after I'm faithful to tie to the local church, this is what I'm going to be willing financially to give on faith to missions and trust that you provide it. And then we're going to have to, to do that. There was a boy that was hurt his father. His father loved missionaries. And his father every day prayed for missions, missionaries, prayed for their families by name, prayed for the uh, the latest needs that he knew of. And, and one day, the, the boy, after hearing his father pray for a great long time for all these missionaries, said, Dad, you know what? I wish I had your money. The father was a little bit surprised by that. And he said, well, wh why would you want my money? And he said, because if I had your money, then I would answer your prayers. So we need to have faith to pay. And then, 2 Corinthians 8 13 and 14, we've looked at that already. What we're really doing here is faith, 
promise to partner is that we become a part of the ministries that we support with our prayers. We become a part of the ministries of, that we support with our finances. Now take your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 30 if you want. I want you to see the principle here. And here's the great thing. If you believe the Bible, then you understand that you were bought with a price. So your body, your soul, your spirit, they don't belong to you, they belong to the Lord. You're redeemed. Everything that you have, including your time, including your abilities, including your money, doesn't really belong to you, it belongs to the Lord. And so we deduce from that that everything that I have as a Christian is a gift from God based on His grace. I seriously doubt any of us is going to stand up and try to make the case that what I have and what I am, I deserve on my own merits. So if that's true, if that working hypothesis and framework is true, then what we're saying here is this, is that God gives me the ability to provide a financial income. And of my increase, he only requires the first tenth to go to the local church, and then he gives me an opportunity, as we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, based on, based on what amount of love is in my heart and what his spirit prompts, to invest some of that stuff that he has given to me, right, in the cause of global missions. And here's the cool thing. He'll reward you like you were giving your own stuff away. But we know we're not. We're just giving his stuff away to him. And he'll reward us like you were giving our stuff away. Now, here's the principle. First Samuel chapter 30 and verse number 23. Then said David, ye shall not do so, my brethren. Now what happened is that, is that some of the men, they had been battling and battling. Some of the men were too fatigued to go on. And so they, they stayed back to protect the home fronts. And some of the men went forward to fight the battle. And when the, when they went, when the men that went forward to fight the battle won, they had the spoils of the battle. And of course, what did they think was the right thing to do? The fair thing to do. Okay? We're talking about equality, not fairness. Okay? They thought the fair thing to do is we risked our lives, we came, we fought, we, had, we swung the swords, we had to get the spoils, so the spoils belong to those of us that went down to the battle. That sounds right, but look at what David said. Then said David, ye shall not do so, my brethren, with what the Lord has given us. Oh, forgot that part of it, right? Who hath preserved us and delivered the company that came against us into our hand? For who will hearken unto you in this matter? But here's the, here's the prescription. But as his part is that goeth down to the battle. Would you agree that's the missionary? That's the missionary that's going down to the battle, right? Now look at this. So shall his part be that tarrieth by the stuff. They shall part alike. That's the principle. We, at least as of right now today, are not called and not going to the mission field. We're not going to the battle. But we're staying here tarrying by the stuff, protecting the home front so that we can supply the needs of the soldiers who are at the battle. And in God's economy, what we're doing is just as important as what they're doing. Because when it comes time for rewards, we're going to part or we're going to inherit or we're going to reap alike. So that means this. If you're faithful in what we can do, what our abundance is, whether you agree with us or not, 
Our abundance, according to 2 Corinthians 8, is finances. Okay? We have money that missionaries don't have. They have access to souls that we don't have. And so, when we're faithful with our abundance, and they're faithful with their abundance, at the judgment seat of Christ, even though you may not think about this, you know, you're going to get the reward, if you're faithful, of a missionary. We, we read names sometimes of stories and anecdotes of people that get saved in the mission field and things that the Lord does in their lives. And we rejoice. We say, isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? But can I remind you, if you're faithful to give to missions, that that person, in the light of eternity, is going to look at you just as much of a part of getting the gospel to him or her as the missionary that got them the gospel. Because that's God's perspective on things. That's how God measures things. But it requires us today to have a matter of faith. So the practical aspect this week as we hear the preaching for the missionaries, as, we, as we're reminded and our heart is stirred, is that next Sunday night, we're going to take a commitment of what each and every one of us as families or individuals are committing to do as it relates to getting the gospel around the world. Our missions giving has been, it's been fantastic. I felt a little Trumpian when I said that, but I didn't, I didn't mean that. I mean, really, it's been fantastic. It's been wonderful. It's grown every year. We'll talk about it on Thursday night. Um, I've got charts and graphs, and it's just, it's just beautiful. It's just beautiful. It's nothing like, it's nothing like it. It's nothing like it. I told everybody. They all said it. But, uh, but we have the ability to, to continue to support new missionaries. I'm grateful there's two missionary families coming to the missions conference that I believe the Lord might have us to support. And we've got a couple lined up coming, one coming in January and a little bit after that. And so I'm excited about that. What a great thing that while other churches' missions, money, missions giving is contracting, ours is expanding and doing so pretty, pretty remarkably. But you say, well, you know what? I just can't see it. I can't see it. I don't, I don't see how this is something that, because what I can see, I can see, the, uh, I can see the extra car payment that I could afford if I wasn't giving to missions. I can see the bigger mortgage that would give us a bigger house if I wasn't giving to, I, that's what I can see. I can't see the, uh, the other things. Well, as I said earlier, faith promise is a matter of faith. But I'll, I'll leave with one in with one small story from the Second World War. In some ways, you never know how important missions giving is. And this is modern saying, I don't know if it's come, come out of use, but, I, but I was, I'm always about five to 10 years too late on these things that come through society and our culture. But uh, uh, I heard uh, this thing called paying it forward, right? Paying it forward, like if you do good, then you know, something good's gonna happen to you type of a thing. Um, and, and, and frankly, semantically, that's not, my favorite saying in the world, but biblically there is some truth to the idea that if we're merciful, God will be merciful to us and so on and so forth. But, but I'm going to give you an example of a story where missions giving paid it forward for other people. In the Second World War, there was a 25-year-old aerial gunner from Toledo, Ohio. His name was Stanley Teft. And um, he, after the war, disclosed that there were Christian natives on one of the South Pacific islands that won seven Navy airmen to Christ who had been shot down in combat by the Japanese. The story went like this. 
the natives had received the gospel from American missionaries before the war. There was three churches planted among their islands that the missionaries started and trained men to lead. And then when the war began, the missionary had to go home. This gunner told the story as he was at the Naval Air Station in Alameda, California, recuperating from his wounds. And he told that Lieutenant Edward Peck and radio man Jeff Scott had reached the island on a raft after two and a half days at sea. Four others were also there, and for the next 87 days, they hid on this Japanese-occupied island, but were protected and watched over by the natives. The first thing these native savages did when they saw the Americans come was they gave each and every one of them a Bible. And Tef said every night the natives would gather around us, they would tend to our wounds, and they would feed us, and then they would listen as we took turns reading the Bible. They sang songs that we had heard and that we knew. And now you can tell the whole wide world that because of those natives, I am now a devout Christian. Now those natives wouldn't have been there if somebody in the United States hadn't been listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit when he had said, separate me, so and so and so and so, for the work whereunto I have called them. They would have never gotten there if it wasn't for local church people like you and I, who had no idea what God was going to do, supporting those missionaries to get to the field financially. And who knows what the fruit has been in these past 70 years. So if you need to have a more visible application of what faith, faith promise missions giving can do, you never really know what your faith promise giving is going to do, not only in eternity, but also in time. I, I think that the Lord is so gracious and so generous to give us all these things and to give us an opportunity to invest them in something that's going to matter for time and for eternity. So I want to encourage you to do two things. Number one, to be here during the missions conference. Let the Lord speak to your hearts. And that might require some of us to reprioritize some things. But I don't know if anybody has been in our previous missions conference would say, you know what, I really wish, I wish I would have worked that extra shift at the burger stands. I really wish I didn't go to missions conference. I don't think anybody would say that. So be here. And then, number two, be available to have the Lord stir your hearts that you might be faithful. Father, we do thank you for this day. And we thank you for the blessings and the wonderful grace you bestowed upon us.